Welcome back to How AI Built This, um, the podcast dedicated to data storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Uh, so huge thanks to them. Uh, today on the show, we have Zandra Moore, CEO and co-founder of Leeds-based Pan Intelligence. So a software company offering uh, a three-in-one embedded data insight solution. We'll get into that in a bit more detail. But Zandra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. No, you're very welcome. So before we get into Pan Intelligence in more detail, let's have a quick jump back to your background. Um, so on the show, we always start kind of on, did someone go to uni? Like what's their education background or did they go straight into work? Um, so you uh, did a business studies degree at University of Huddersfield, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I was the first in my uh, family to go to university. My dad sent me with a briefcase and a three-piece suit. So I wasn't particularly popular. I had no trainers either. Um, so, yeah, they, they were very excited for me to go to uni. I did a business degree at CIPD, Chartered Institute for Personal Development. Um, did a placement year at ICI thinking I wanted to work in HR because I like to work with people. Promptly made about half the staff redundant um, on a chemical plant and decided HR wasn't for me, but I like the people a bit. So, uh, yeah, I've ended up in sales and, and tech and, um, and not looked back, really. Nice. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, like, um, you ended up doing various positions, kind of technology sales. So, like, working for different companies and working for yourself uh, and being a director at some of these companies as well. So, what was, uh, how did you kind of get into tech sales and then what was that? kind of journey like until kind of pan intelligence uh, so I was really fortunate I had a, a great role model at home my mum fell into IT uh, she answered an ad in the Yorkshire Post for a company called Planet Online which is the first internet service provider in the north of England she had no idea what the internet was I think it was called the information superhighway at the time so she ended up being employed me employee number three um, worked her way up through various companies um, became sort of head, of head of international sales for a very large corporate in the end through a number of acquisitions and just saw how much she loved the industry. I was really inspired by that. So when I left university, I just wanted to go and do what my mum did, really, to be honest with you. So sort of followed followed in her footsteps. So it was also a really buoyant part of the economy. It was a tech sector when I graduated. And, and, and fundamentally, there was a lot of people looking for graduates at the time. So it was an easy place just to fall into as well, if <laughs> I'm being candid. But yeah, I've, I've never looked back. I absolutely love the tech industry, the pace of it, the the, the, the energy of, of both the people and the markets and the pace of change really suits my personality. So, um, so yeah, as far as the roles that I've done, it's been predominantly commercial, sales-driven. Um, and after having two children, I found myself uh, in a position where if I wanted to have the flexibility and the opportunity that I needed around my family, I needed to really be self-employed. Um, there wasn't that at the time, really, in technology. Um, there is now, but at the time, it was a bit more difficult to be a sales director on the road. Uh, and work on a part-time basis so yeah set up my own consultancy business and then ended up um, finding Pan Intelligence um, as an opportunity did a management buyout with a couple of other people uh, bought the IP and have been growing that business for the last six years so yeah I've been quite right. Nice. Um, yeah, so I didn't know that part of the story. I actually read something, I think yesterday, I think, about the management buyout. So you were kind of like Pan Intelligence was like the client you were working with was using Pan yeah. Intelligence, right? Um, yeah, so so I, yeah, I had a consultancy business called Sales Cake, which I'd set up out of necessity, really. 
And I had five different clients that were all early stage software businesses that wanted a kind of part-time sales director because I've been a sales director previously. So I was an affordable sales director for small companies that, that needed my expertise but couldn't afford my time. And Pan Intelligence is one of those. And when the company that had built Pan Intelligence was acquired, it was one of a number of products they built. And me and uh, two of the people that were in the business at the time um, ran a, a management buyout and bought the IP. So I'd been working with them for over two years and I'd helped them to get the business, um, the product established. So it was a great opportunity. I'd always wanted to own an IP, but I'm not a techie, so I don't build tech. So I was really looking for um, a product that I loved and a team that I wanted to work with and, and and that was it. So a chance for a piece of the pie, really. Yeah, nice. Yeah, no, it's a different way in, but it makes sense. Like you said, if you're not a techie, like it's hard to build a tech company from scratch. What was what was Pan Intelligence kind of back then in terms of like what were they trying to do and and how big was the team? Yeah, so um, a really good question. We were, we were a very small team. We were six people when we did the management buyout. Um, when I joined, we had a, a very small number of customers, but they were our customers through the the larger software business that we, we were part of at the time, big financial organisations, big uh, big banks and financial intermediaries. I was brought in to help them sell it outside of that market, so into the verticals. And so we spent a couple of years proving that we could sell this product outside of the fintech market space, which we did. And when we did the management buyout, we, we were confident we could continue to do that. So uh, six of us spun the business out in 2014. Um, we also raised some seed investment to help us to both buy acquire the IP. So myself and Ken, who's a CTO and co-founder, emptied our bank accounts and, and you know our savings and, and bought as much of it as we could. But we needed a bit of help, so we did have some other um, people around us that, that knew us and worked with us for a few years that helped us to do that. Yeah, no, I, um, Ken spoke at one of our uh, our first ever Leeds ML event, uh, and he was great. So, um, no, I, I've, I've met Ken before, so this is a good story for that you guys just kind of got it going. So, yeah, you said there were six people then. You were trying to get into new areas and the funding, so it's quite a lot to do in one time, or roughly. Um, <laughs> this is one thing we sometimes ask on the show, depending on who we're speaking to, but how did you find the... I don't know, that kind of funding process. Like, did you learn loads the first time? So when you've had to do it again, you kind of learn from mistakes or was it quite an easy process for, for the company? Uh, the first time, um, I did very little, to be quite frank. So these people are all known to us. And uh, we had a, a, our then MD, FD, Mike Cripps, who'd done this before, was was involved in the business. And he was part of the, the original company that we did the management buyout from. So yeah, to be fair, he, he kind of led on that and... I sort of was a passenger more than a, than a driver of that initial seed raise. The second time round, I, I was very much leading that. And um, yeah, it, you know, raising a Series A is very, very different to raising some seed capital from people you already know. Um, I was like, oh, this would, this would be easy. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty um, challenging from a, getting your head around the process. But actually, it's like anything. You've just got to commit yourself and expect that you'll learn as you go. And that's what we did. So once we were absolutely confident that, you know, raising a Series A would, would give us the, the growth capital to, to take advantage of the opportunity we now have, once we were, were absolutely all behind it, we just had to get on with it. You know, you can't learn everything. You just have to learn by doing sometimes. So. Yeah, no, that's a, good, that's a good point. And also, I read something again that um, I quite liked, that, that when you were doing the Series A, you kind of refused to... I don't know, like compromise on the culture piece. So like you said that there was no way there's not an investor out there that wouldn't like buy into that as well. So obviously that worked out, but I, I feel like that's probably a mistake quite a lot of companies make when they're at that stage, right? They kind of almost just take the money because it's there rather than really thinking about stuff like that. 
ignorance is bliss, right? So I was like, well, surely everybody gets culture is important. You know, if you don't have a strong, you know, we're a people business. We build a product. We, you know, people build a product. You know, we. I kind of made it a given that surely everyone gets it. So I was looking for it. It's not, there's not that many investors that really get it. I think candidly, um, I think that's being honest. And I still think it's an area that because you can't put it on a balance sheet and you can't monetize it easily and you can't put a number on culture, it's still difficult for, for the investor community to, to really tangibly get their arms around, you know, is there really a culture here that drives value? And I think we've still yet to work out how to do that effectively as, as a, as an investment community and, and as, as, as you know, as CEOs of companies, we've got to help them to do that. So I don't think that's a science that anybody's worked out properly how to do. And if I could find a way to do that, then um, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, but yeah, we did find people that, that got it. And, you know, it's people by people, you know, we bought them, they bought us. It was all about, you know, um, people we felt we could work with that we could have a relationship with. And whilst we had tech funds that were based out of London and overseas that were interested in business, we ended up going for a local one because we wanted to have a relationship with with the investors and with the people. We wanted to see them regularly. And ironically, we then went into COVID and we haven't physically seen them at all. Um, but that hasn't made a difference. You know, lots of regular communication. You know, they have been supportive and worked with us all the way. So it doesn't matter. Nice. And then I suppose going back to the company then, so like I said at the start, you offer like a, a three-in-one data solution. So that encompasses dashboards, reporting, and then predictive analytics. So it's probably worth going into that in a bit more detail. Can who, who are you selling to as a customer base and kind of what are they looking for from you? Yeah, so it's a great question. Computer started off in the early days, we were selling to banks and then we were selling to any software business that had a bit of software that they wanted to improve the data reporting from so things like dashboards and reports essentially and then in the last just over 12 months since we did our series a we've really focused in on a very specific market and the reason we've chosen the market we have is because that's where the 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 international opportunity is and the acceleration of growth will come from for us so um we're now working just with SaaS vendors so cloud hosted software applications um, we have lots of referenceability across a number of verticals for us, so finance, education, healthcare, retail, in those segments in particular, but on AWS predominantly. So a lot of AWS hosted software vendors. So we have an AWS marketplace solution. So taking our product, which is enabling those software vendors to enhance their data visualization, reporting and predictive modeling, white labeled as their own brand and being able to do that in days as opposed to years, not having to use their development time or their scarce resource to do that. They're embedding and white labeling our engine to switch on better access to data for their customers. So improving their customers' experience and access to data, helping their customers to get better insights and enabling them to build those insights for themselves, but doing that in a really, really quick, affordable way that enables them to sort of switch it on without, without even thinking about um, approaching this from a from a, a dev point of view um so i think you're finding that that kind of no code movement so app building with third-party technologies but white labeling it as your own is it's a huge wave now and we're definitely at the heart of that no code movement right now we're, we're, we're one of those no code tools that you can switch on and create value from really quickly and it's a, de- a developer's no code platform essentially does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, I was definitely a bit, that. Bit tech, bit, tech, tech, bit tech to tech, really, I think, what you get. Um, we sometimes catch ourselves up in because it's hard not, It's hard to make tech to tech conversations simple, <laughs> I find. 
Uh, no, I was definitely going to ask about the no codes. I mean, I've seen, like you said, it's a really big like wave just now, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you, when you're offering the kind of white label solution to the customers, do they come back and ask you for customizations and like certain things within the data or because you've done it for so long and know what people are looking for, like, are they surprised by what you're offering more than the other way around? Yeah, so we're one of those best kept secrets, which is part of why we need the funding. And we've done a rebrand, which we launched yesterday, is that all our competition isn't really built for embedding and white labeling in SaaS cloud platforms. They're not. They're built for enterprise applications and deployment. So um, so, so we're built for what SaaS vendors need, but they don't know we exist. And so our job really now is to get known and get found. So the first thing is having something that does three things, you know, data visualization, reporting and predictive modeling in one engine. That's unusual. And then the second thing is the fact that you can do this without writing a line of code and that their developers, all they have to do is configure it. They don't have to develop anything in order to activate that and make it available to their customers. And then and then lastly, really, that, that it just seamlessly integrates into their cloud infrastructure without them having to think about problems around they don't need to move data Data security is managed in a way that, you know, we came from banking. So we're compliant with all sorts of data regulation because we had to for the banks originally. Um, but there's lots of things that we do that really lend itself to SaaS environments from the tenancy and all sorts of other techie stuff that I won't bore you with. But um, ultimately, you know, we're, we're, we're designed for that that environment. And what we need to do is, is be found. Uh, so working very hard on that right now with our sort of branding again to market strategy. Nice. It's almost like the opposite of the kind of American way of doing things, right? Where you like sell, sell, sell and don't have anything to back it up. You guys have built yeah. something that you can really back yeah. up well, and need to sell it. Typical Brits, right? Typical Brits, you know. We won't, we're not prepared to go out and make a big noise until we're absolutely sure we can follow up with our um, with what we can deliver. But, you know, we're, I suppose we're Yorkshire folk, you know, we're, we're straight talking, you know, we, we, we deliver on our promises. We, um, Ron Seal, so we just what it says on the tin, you know, there's no overhyped, overinflated promises here. The problem we've problem we've got is an awesome product that no one knows about and it's a great problem to have yeah no definitely and i was going to mention some of your competitions so like just some small companies like microsoft power bi and tableau and looker who are getting like bought for billions and then mm-hmm. kind of yorkshire company coming up coming up through the wings trying to steal their business um, but it looks like the, the platform can really hold its own it's just going to be that case of getting out of there right yeah, 100%. And we win against Looker and Sisense and Power BI every single time we close a deal. These are the people at the table. So um, the difference for us is we're just focused on those SaaS vendors. These guys aren't. So it's, you know, absolutely 100% what we do and everything we do as a business and our product is geared for those SaaS vendors. So, so you know, it makes it easier for us to win, but we've got to get found, right? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I tried really hard to use Power BI and Tableau for some very, very basic reporting uh, within our company, and I gave up so quickly. Like, it was impossible. It was not made for non-techies. It was, like, it, it just didn't work. And But what I was trying to do wasn't worth us, like, paying a consultant to do for us. So we just ended up, we just gave up in the end. Um, so if, if bigger companies are having that pain with those vendors, then hopefully Pan Intelligence will be... Uh, able to swoop in and take them away as well i hope so <laughs> that's the plan so you mentioned covid earlier and obviously we can't really do a podcast without mentioning it just now you and the team did something pretty cool like early on right kind of right at the start of the the first lockdown now that we're going into number two but you offered pan intelligence software for free right yeah and it just felt like an obvious thing to do i mean our, our product is built it's there we just need to get it into the hands of people um and what we felt 
and we saw in our local community was people trying to grasp with you know scenario modeling what is our what are the outcomes for our business by but we can only scenario model if we know what's happening now and we can track that in real time because every every day that went by people were seeing things change orders delivery uh, implementation of projects um supply chains everything was changing so rapidly that people just didn't have the visibility to make good enough decisions about what they did or didn't do and that really was causing people a lot of pain because the pace of change was so fast so real-time data access becomes incredibly important when change is so rapid because real-time decisions then become invaluable to, to whether people you know what businesses survive quite frankly so we just felt giving the software to businesses especially in yorkshire was really important that was that was you know if we can't help people on doorstep it, it was a bit of a, a crying shame so yeah so that's what we did and you know people took us up on it and we worked with a lot of small businesses um so uh, you know did what we could really um, but not always easy for those small businesses to prioritize something like we do either you know give it a time when there's lots of other things going on so i don't think we had a massive impact but it was good to help the people that were able to take advantage of it yeah no definitely and do you think it might not you might not have noticed this yet but do you think there'll be a kind of weird upside to covid for a company that does what you do when companies realize that they really need to get like a handle on their data essentially or even i mean we've noticed that, that there's companies that had like a big transformation project probably due to be penciled in sometime 2021 2022 and now they're just going for it do you think that will hopefully kind of benefit when they get to speak to you it's, it's interesting because we're, we're speaking to people that hold the data. So the SaaS vendors are collecting tons of it. And actually, the thing that's driving our opportunity most is the fact that business continuity and remote working is forcing more transition to cloud solutions for business operations at a pace that, that wasn't pre-COVID. And because that then accelerates our own market's growth, they therefore are collecting more data and therefore there's a greater need for them to be able to serve better insights to their customers. So we're probably being more massaged from a from a from a go-to-market point of view or opportunity point of view by remote working and business continuity, because that's what SaaS vendors are enabling. But perhaps the the, the sort of decision making at this point in time. But I think you're right, give it another six months when people have got the time to sort of catch their breath and think about how do we how do we change things for the better and give ourselves a better chance of dealing with something like this again i think those bi budgets and projects will come back to the forefront because people will go what can we learn people need people haven't got time to to take breath and stop and look back and learn we're still in the middle of it right i think you only get to those sorts of decisions when people pause think and and, and change uh, right now it's just SaaS growth is about business continuity how do we just keep our teams working um, and and keep them delivering um, operationally that, that's the main driver does that make sense yeah no definitely makes sense this is a bit of a two-part question so i always ask people on the show kind of what it's been like for you kind of building a team and kind of your thoughts on what a kind of high performing team looks like but it's probably worth going back a step to like what does pan intelligence team look like now so there was six when you joined and obviously you're offering like a no code solution so i imagine there's some very smart people in the in the background of pan intelligence building that in the first place yeah, we've got an amazing team of people, an amazing team of people that have been with us for a very long time. We have we have low attrition, and I think we have low attrition. You mentioned culture at the start, but we're still a small enough team to, to keep our arms around the whole business, even remotely, and, and check in with everybody. And, you know, we build roles around people, um, not people around a role. So 
there's a lot of um, ability for people to work creatively and innovatively and, 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 and operate across teams as opposed to just in silos. I think that really helps them to get the most out of their working life and enjoy what they do. And I think if people are given the opportunity to create and innovate and ideate and contribute and bring them whole selves to work, they enjoy themselves better at work. And, and I think, you know, culture plays a huge part in, in, in us enabling that and keeping those really talented people so, yeah, attracting people is one challenge. And I think it's easier for us now as we're building our brand. A few years ago, it was a lot harder. <laughs> there was only six or seven of us. Convincing people to work for us felt like a, you know, a real start for attracting talent. It's a bit easier now. But really, it's much more about keeping those great people. And I think what we are seeing is companies in London now, you know, they've got probably better access to funds flow um, than perhaps some other northern companies just because of the critical mass of investment. And down in down in London are starting to reach out to the regions and pick off um, teams of developers and consultants from from other companies. So we're definitely seeing that as a as a challenge. Um, we're seeing it happen to some of our peers in the region. I think you'll have to be mindful that we may have to start paying London wages to keep our our local people just just so that we don't we don't lose some of that talent. And that's where you know culture becomes so essential because they have to stay for more than just money especially if you're an earlier stage business and you don't have the funding. So, yeah, it's about attraction, but I think it's much more about retention and going forward it'll have to be. So do you think that's maybe one thing, and we've not touched on it hugely actually in the show, but do you think that's one thing when you are building a team is like you have to have retention in mind. So like there's no point in building an amazing team and then them all even within six months. You have to have that kind of like long-term attitude. Cost of acquiring a customer in a SaaS business is talked about endlessly, right? But the cost of acquiring a member of team and their onboarding timeframe and the loss of that to the business from a, a business continuity and disruption to delivery or development or customer success or sales doesn't get talked about enough. And again, I go back to, you know, if we could monetize, if we could, if we could um, monetize, if we could, well, we could monetize culture, but if you could, if you could put metrics around culture that people could really tangibly understand, I think if SaaS and other businesses like ours could put some more tangible metrics around the, the cost of losing staff and the value of retention, I think that helps the whole culture, culture conversation. That makes sense. It's all part of that analysis. And yeah, retention is absolutely as important as attracting the right people. You know, if you've gone to all the trouble of attracting great people, and there's a lot of cost in that, right? <laughs> it's not cheap. How you how you keep them and um, and focus on them and the whole person is 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 critically important. I think in these times where we're all remote working, you've just got to work so much harder at it. You can never over communicate to your team, and you can never make any assumptions about where they're at. You absolutely must be having those conversations as frequently as you possibly can. And, yeah, maybe we're all doing a lot more internal meetings right now, but I think if you don't, you, you, you've got a good chance that somebody else is going to pick them up. <laughs> Have you managed to do anything? Like, I'm sure everyone went, like, Zoom crazy in March and April where it was, like, constant communication. But is there anything that's really stuck that since you've been kind of remote working, has there been something that's been really valuable? Like, even if it is just checking in on a Friday afternoon or something like that, has there been something that's really helped with the cultural piece? Do you know, the things that worked at the start that don't work anymore. Um, so we did happy hours every Friday and everyone joined them. And we, you know, we fin- early finished and we did quizzes and everyone got bored of quizzes and then we tried to come up with other ideas. And everyone's, you know, we've run out of ideas, quite frankly. We've got to the, you know, happy hour on a Friday has become, you know, a bit like an awkward kind of who's got an idea and how are we going to run this? And actually, we, we, you know, we've got to keep innovating how we keep our team together 
doing things creatively. It's no good to just assume that something that worked at the start is going to continue working. Absolutely, I don't think what we're doing now or what we've been doing is going to continue to work. So, you know, we did um, we did a secret banter, which is about like secret Santa, but actually we all said tricks in the post to each other, but no one knew what they were. You know, so people got like fart spray and, you know, severed plastic heads and uh, somebody got a scary bear that when you pressed the tummy screamed at you. I mean, it was just daft, right? But it was fun and it was daft and it was and it made people smile at the moment actually what people want is something to lift them to make them feel sort of a bit lighter and and you try to bring that kind of feeling into the business sometimes can feel a bit awkward and a bit forced and sometimes somebody's got to be brave enough to go we're going to do this and you're going to love it and everyone go okay it sounds a bit weird and then you do it and everyone falls about laughing and it's brilliant and you realize that You've just got to be brave enough to try some of the stranger things just to keep everybody engaged. So we're going to keep pushing the boundaries of that. If I come up with anything that is really brilliant, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, that'd be most, amazing. Most things are, are just, you know, trying to make people laugh and bring them together for any excuse at all. Candidly. Yeah, no, that's what we, I mean, we did the same thing, like all the quizzes. Like if I'd never do a Zoom quiz again, I'll be delighted. But even like we did for a while, just like 12 o'clock, there would be like an open Teams meeting, grab a coffee and just like chat. But the only rule was you couldn't chat about work. Like it was just chat. Cause that's yeah. what you would do in an office, right? You just chat about stuff. But it used to be like five of us. And then it was like two of us and sometimes just one person. So it just kind of slowly dwindled. And yeah, we're trying to think of like those kind of more fun things that isn't just like everyone jump on zoom and do this. Like maybe like, yeah, like sending people stuff's quite a good idea. Like just like those little things, like to try and keep people like motivated. Have you felt like as a CEO, you've almost had to like, over communicate like every business decision every update every customer like just anything that happens yeah. it's like you feel like you have to tell everyone yeah i mean we, we have all hands meetings which is everybody in the company and we go from how much money is in the bank right the way through to you know which customers we've won or lost even right you know, yeah. you know everything warts and all so that is totally transparent and sometimes it's as, it's as important to share the things that are going wrong as the things that are going right because if the voice into the business is hey everything's great all the time people stop believing it People want to feel that they're absolutely in touch with the truth of what's going on because that makes them feel more settled, I think, that they know exactly what's happening. If people feel that things are being kept from them, that makes them feel more insecure. Than you think you're protecting them, you're not, quite frankly. I think what you have to do is be as open as you possibly can, you know, warts and all, open, and people then feel that they can be open and tell you how they're feeling and whether they're scared or you know, feeling insecure or, or something bad's happening for them because people are struggling in personal environments at home at the moment. You know, we're not we're not all as fortunate as I am to have my own home office and people are finding it quite difficult in, for different reasons. And unless you're honest and open with them, they won't be honest and open with you. So yes, over-communicate, but over-communicate everything, you know, and don't protect people. They don't want protecting. They just want to have a relationship which is two-way and honest. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. And I think it kind of comes down to the culture piece as well because we're a relatively small company and like I always think one of the advantages we can have over like the big companies especially for you and Leeds like competing with like Sky, William Hill you name it like all those big companies it's like there's no way their CEOs jumping on a call to the whole company telling them about the customers they've just lost and the fact that they have less money in the bank than they did last week like those things just don't happen at big companies right so like that's where the retention piece comes in like you feel like you're like really part of it and like what you're doing on a monday to friday is actually like having an impact as opposed to maybe just being another person yeah i think people need purpose in life and whilst all of the things that gave us a sense of purpose outside of work have been moved away from us you know yeah. whether it's going to a gig or you know i coach girls football team and i found out today that 
all the games that we've got for the next three or four weeks are cancelled now and I can't even coach them I can't even go and just kick a ball out in the field and it's I know for those girls how important that is on a weekend because they can't do that at school because everything at school has been stopped from a physical education point of view oh has it really yeah, I mean, my, my daughter can't play football at school. Um, she can't play anything, any contact type or any type of sport. They're literally doing kind of squats in a field or, or some kind of basic basic kind of um, outdoor um, sport. You know, everything stops. So, you know, people are losing those things that gave them a purpose outside of work. So then work becomes even more important from a feeling, a sense of purpose point of view. So you do have responsibilities and an employer and as a CEO to be mindful of that fact and that, you need to help people to feel where or help them to know where they're adding value. And people only know where they're adding value if you if you tell them the good and the bad. It just, you just can't, you know, if people feel, if they understand a problem, they can help you solve it. If you don't give people the opportunity to help you solve those problems by telling them what the problems are, the best way you can make somebody feel useful is to, to hand them the problem and say, hey, have you got an idea how we could deal with this? And that's when people feel, yeah, great, I can do something, I can change something, it gives me, it empowers them. So, um, yeah, I think... Um, it's, it's complex, right? This is this is all about psychology and people. And I can't say I've got it all right. I just I just try and be as open minded as I can be to where the team are at. And you know, my team, my management team are amazing. They, they they're all as kind of open and as engaged in this. And you kind of you can't do this on your own. And you know, they make that possible by by mirroring that culture right the way through the business so that so that it's consistent and it doesn't just come from one person. Oh, that makes sense. And I didn't even really think about it until right now. But when you said that about your um, daughter's football team, like we got to play football for four weeks, I think, recently. And then it all got taken away again. And I I felt so much better when I had like that just one night a week of like playing football. Like, that was kind of like where I would able to like just relax. And then it's just all been taken away again. So like it's just it's really frustrating for, for those things. Will Pan Intelligence be work from anywhere slash work from home forever? But also, do you think that that will potentially be a challenge to like you said earlier the london stuff so if, if all companies suddenly do that does that then mean that kind of companies down london can afford everyone and throw money at everyone in manchester leeds edinburgh for example we opened the office for about six weeks in the summer when the cases were really low yeah and the difference to the energy of the individuals that came in was huge and we need social interaction there is no way we'll be a permanently remote business because actually we're a people company and people need to be around other people and you, you need to be around other people than your home environment. It's good for your mental health and well-being. Now, some people have a really active personal life outside of work and therefore it doesn't matter as much to them. But there are a lot of people who don't and actually work is as much of their, you know, is, is as important for their social um, interaction as it is, is as is a means to an end or, or a job or a way to pay the bills so so I know I get a lot out of just being around people and it energizes me and it motivates me and it gives me a lift so we're never going to be 100% remote and therefore I don't think it will be practical for these London companies from a long-term strategy point of view to just have everybody remote I think you will find a, a dilution of any, any culture if you value your culture very quickly I also feel um, it's very difficult to keep those people and retain them in the business because what else are they connected with? You know, how do you keep them truly as part of um, a business that they feel really connected to if they're 100% remote? So I think physically getting together is important. Whether we have a hub as opposed to an office, I don't know. But right now, we don't need to worry about it. You know, we'll, we've, we've got a building on an office park that we're, we're keeping until such a time we make a decision otherwise. But 
Yeah. And then no, I mean, we've had this discussion loads and I totally agree with you. Like, I quite like the idea of like hubs. So like if, for example, if Pan Intelligence decided to have like a Manchester hub, maybe like another one in like Birmingham or something like that, where you have like maybe five, 10 people, um, but those people are still in the culture. Like they're just not in the Leeds HQ, for example. Like I think that might work, but I think, yeah, 100% remote. And one of the things I've noticed is if you end up being one of the only people remote and there's 10 people in the office and you dial into like that conference call, like you just feel totally out of it. So like that makes it hard. It's easy when everyone's remote, right? But it won't be easy when not everyone is. And not everyone will always be remote, right? Because there's just so many businesses and industries where you physically have to be in a space to deliver a service and deliver a product. So, you know, I just just don't think it's a realistic um, long-term strategy for any company. And if we all understand how important culture is to, to... to driving value and retaining staff, then you know we know how that can't all be done digitally. It just it just isn't practical to do it all digitally. I don't think um, yeah, no. unless somebody comes up with a, a winning piece of technology that enables us to do that. I think human nature is. I would like to not just look forward. I'd quite like to look at the side and walk between meeting rooms from a day to day basis. That would be really nice. Um, I actually miss it. Yeah, no, I miss it too. And I've actually felt bad. So I mean, we've we only hire people with no experience uh, in the industry. So like, we've had a couple of people join recently, and they're just not getting the full experience by not being with everyone all the time. Like they're kind of seeing some people sometimes, and then rest of it's on like big teams calls or stuff like that and I, I mean for me it's easy i've been working there for years so like i feel confident enough to speak on all the calls and like all these kind of things but if you're brand new like you'll kind of just shy away and not get as involved which is really hard yeah we've had seven or eight new starters during this period um of which there's at least four of them i've never physically met face to face must be hard you know, it's not. It's harder for them than it is for us. Like you said, we're already part of something that we, we feel connected to. It's much harder for them to become part of it. Your, your point is absolutely spot on. I think, you know, it's as much about helping people to onboard and feel part of it. Um, but I don't know. We, we seem to be doing all right. I think um, we're doing all right. Um, it's not. It's not as easy. Can you imagine doing your job like when you first left uni and you were trying to be like this new person into a sales team? And you were being like trained over Zoom how to like sell technology solutions. Like it just like it would be impossible, right? Yeah, yeah. I was we had to hire a laptop um, from the the IT cupboard that came in a briefcase, and um, we, we were given a Rolodex and no computer and the other pages. So <laughs> it was very different. Um, we 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 sell our software to companies, and all of our training is done remotely and. We seem to manage to do that okay. And I think that works from a selling a product to market point of view. But I think about helping people to feel safe in their role and feel like they're delivering value in those first six weeks, six months, when people are on probation. Um, people are just a lot more vulnerable. You know, it's one thing selling a product that someone's buying off you and doing everything remotely. I think it's quite another when you've got a person who needs to add value and, and helping them to add that value so that they, they don't feel that they're, they're at risk is just different and I, and I, I don't think I don't think remote working helps that I think it actually makes that a problem a yeah I think the whole situation has probably meant a lot of companies who maybe weren't before are now more flexible which I don't think is a bad thing for things like working mums returning to work like stuff like that but I don't think personally I'm, I'm with you like I don't think 100% work from home forever is the way to go but we'll see 
uh we've also had clients asking us how would they pay people if they hire them in different countries and like i don't have the answer to that either like if you hire three people in france two in belgium and four in leeds like how do you actually pay all those people like it's not as straightforward as just transferring them money um so there's loads of different like quirks to it as well yeah and i don't know we don't have that problem yet thankfully (laughs) so no we've got we've got um we've got a little way to go before we've got that kind of global people footprint but for us we're, we're servicing the whole of the world from the uk and i think one of the benefits of all of this remote working is it's become even easier for us to to do that it's almost become more of a given that it doesn't matter where we're based they don't really care as long as they can speak to somebody and and, and get the support they need from us and they're not restricted by time zones then um, they're not really bothered that we're in the uk and they're in holland or the us or new zealand and you know we, we were attracting business from all over the world and i think therefore we might be able to continue to build our operations just in the uk which would be great that'd be brilliant if i could build the business all in yorkshire i'd be quite happy about that being a yorkshire That'd be brilliant. And also, you're right, you don't need to go meet people like straight away now to try and close a close a deal for anyone. So that, that part makes it a little bit easier. You are, you're pretty heavily involved in the kind of Leeds tech scene. I appreciate it. it's a very remote tech scene right now. But I, know, I mean, I know Pan Intelligence have spoken and been involved in loads of events like Ken at Leeds ML, but also you individually, where you've kind of founded the, the Lean and Leeds meetup or kind of like... Um, event um which i think is aimed am i right in saying kind of next generation female leaders and trying to like inspire them yeah i mean it's a it's a it was a happy accident i don't just happy i think it was just a complete accident really i, I read a book by cheryl sandberg um ceo of facebook um who had set up this community to help you know inspire that next generation of leaders and female leaders and, you know, she's Facebook, so she created a social platform for us all to kind of organise ourselves. Uh, she'd look for a local circle. I looked for one. There wasn't one. Created one. But it'd be really nice to meet other female founders, leaders, and build that community because I didn't have one. And, you know, four years later, we've got 800 members and, you know, a steering group of 12 female business leaders and leads helping us run that, all completely voluntary, free. We run two events a month. We have mentoring programmes with over 100 women being mentored by being co-mentored. It's been all just, you know, grown arms and legs, really. And I think it just shows you what the need is out there for people to be connected into peer groups where they feel that they can be honest and open about certain conversations that perhaps in their work environments and home environments are difficult. And for a lot of women, there is still a sense that there are some um, barriers, whether they're self-created or external, that they're facing into, that they're trying to work out how to solve. Sometimes it's, self-confidence, self-belief. Sometimes it's a subconscious bias from external parties that they don't they don't know how to influence. Uh, sometimes it's just simple glass ceilings, right? So, you know, some of it's our own, some of it's others, and people just want to be able to be in a safe place to have those conversations and learn about how to deal with those and change those things. And so a huge need for that, and that's just created this massive community, which I'm very proud of, really, really proud, and, and like, it's very dynamic. So I say it's not really just run by me, it's run by a lot of amazing ladies that that have really sort of taken it under their wing and, and grown it over the last few years. So. Nice. And is it specifically for kind of tech females or kind of, is it anyone who's remotely interested in business uh, in any capacity? It's it's for us, for aspiring women of every age and stage of life. You know, we've got women that are retired, enabling and helping and supporting other, other generations of women by giving them access to or the benefit of their experience or access to their networks or sharing their own stories and journeys to graduates. And, and uh, even my daughter's spoken at an event 
I can't believe what I'm going to ask the next question is what does 2021 look like for a company? Because <laughs> I remember doing the very first remote version of the podcast and like i don't know start of april and i was like oh we'll be back doing them in offices in no time and we're now in november so um yeah what does 2021 look like for for pan intelligence i mean you mentioned the rebrand uh which looks really cool was that part of the strategy for next year kind of and, and just keep growing like you mentioned earlier yeah so it, for, for us it's um find more SaaS vendors um be found by more SaaS vendors uh globally and grow our customer base and our team. Um, a lot of this is about being visible in the market. And, you know, if I was to put a big ambition on it, it would be top right of the magic quadrant in Gartner for, for, for embedded analytics. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a leader in that segment, it'd be great. So um, yeah, just growing, doing more of what we do. Um, the product's great and established and we'll just continue to develop that, but we just, we're just pushing into market. That's our, that's our main um, strategy. So just making lots and lots of noise in 2021 about why companies should use Pan intelligence, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> but in a very Yorkshire way, so like, kind of just being very nice about uh, it. But, but being very, very Yorkshire about it, but trying to be a little bit more um, ballsy. I'm going to use the word ballsy. I think you know the one thing the Americans do very well is that they they're very very good at pushing their, oh, their brand message out there, and uh, I'm trying to learn a little bit from that. And we're going to be um, we're going to be a lot more ballsy. 2021 i'm gonna go out there and really make a lot of noise and not be afraid of it nice i love it uh well i'm really excited to see where it all goes um we'll kind of link everything up when we post the show to the the website and the new brand and everything like that but then yeah we'll keep an eye on how everything's going and and who knows we can maybe get you back on um this time next year when you're uh the kind of made all that noise and see how it's see how it's impacted the company i'd love you to see that that'd be great thank you amazing well thank you very much for coming on it's a pleasure 